church. It's good to see your faces, and it's good to have a few of you who are able to be here in person with us today. Um, I just want to make a couple of um, remarks to scriptures this morning. We realize that this is uh, different. It will be a bit of a hybrid service as we try to navigate those who are in person and those who are online. And we want to make everyone feel as much as included as possible. And that even includes kids. And so I want to especially make a couple of remarks this morning to those who are here with small children or those who are watching online and considering coming. I just want to begin by saying that God put the wiggle in your kids, so don't feel like you need to take it out of them. It's what happens naturally, and we would much rather have, believe me, we would much rather have the wiggle and your kids and even some screams from time to time than simply standing here and looking at the camera that we've been looking at for the last, I think, 23 or 24 weeks. So we are glad that you are here, little ones included. If you do feel that for your own sanity, <laughs> that you need to take them somewhere where they can run around, the family room is uh, to my left and to your right. And so we're glad that everyone uh, is here this morning. I also want to say that I told a lie last week. Uh, the contractors here uh, turned me into a liar because there is no AC in this building today. Um, the there were everything was installed and we got to the final bit of electrical that needed to be put in major mistake was made and so they didn't put the right kind of transformer in they're working on that uh, they'll be back tomorrow and hopefully get that wrapped up at the first of next week and so it should be about oh six or eight degrees cooler in here next week now thankfully it was cool today and we found some third floor air that we were able to turn on and utilize some fans over the night so it's pretty, it's pretty nice in here today. It's not 90 degrees like it's been the rest of the summer. So well, we're glad that you're here today. Grab a Bible. Uh, grab your phone app if you don't have a Bible with you. And turn to John chapter 11. We have been studying the gospel of John now for the last 30 weeks. Learning from Jesus' best friend, John. And in this gospel, we've spent now um, about... 30 weeks covering this gospel, and we're right at the halfway point. John was Jesus' best friend, and John gives us lots of information that isn't included in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John wrote somewhere around 80, 70, maybe a little later, we're uncertain. Um, but we know that it was after Peter's death. It was after most of the other eyewitnesses uh, had already died. And so John gives us about 90% of what he gives us isn't found in the other Gospels. And so from John's Gospel, we learn a lot of valuable things about Jesus wouldn't have without this particular book. We've spent about 30 weeks getting to this point, And we've covered roughly three years of Jesus' life. Now in the second half of the book, we will cover roughly one week of Jesus' life as we look at uh, the passion and the suffering that Jesus will go into. Uh, if you will remember the context where we are in this book is that Jesus has been performing amazing miracles and signs. John points us to seven of those signs 
throughout his gospel. That much of the first half of this gospel is built around. Each of those signs were meant to show us a physical miracle that points to an even greater spiritual reality in the kingdom of God. Um, We saw recently where Jesus had healed a man who was blind from birth. and, And the guy, he frustrates the religious leaders so much so that they end up kicking him out of the synagogue. If you remember that story, they continue to ask him question after question. And he says, what, do you guys want to be his disciples too? <laughs> and they kick him out. And uh, we see that, that this man in particular, um, he follows Jesus. And he says, he gives this testimony that's true for each of us today. He said, all I know is I was blind and now I see. And then in John chapter 11, we see the death of Lazarus. And things go from bad to worse. Jesus comes back into the public eye by resurrecting a good friend, Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. And in the seventh and last, the greatest of Jesus' signs, uh, he shows that he has power over life and death. Power over life and death. Kids, talk about something amazing. I can remember in kindergarten and grade school when we would... There would be this continuous conversation that would go on amongst boys. I think it's still true today. Uh, they would say, imagine that you could be any superhero. Who would you be? And, and boys would always come up with something, you know. They, they always jumped to something that they could just, you know, grasp and have fun with, right? Oh, I'd have x-ray vision. I'd look through the walls. I'd see what my parents are doing. I, you know, they, no one ever said resurrection. Like, we missed it. Who cares about leaping tall buildings. You can jump off a building and die, but if you have the power of resurrection, you can just bring yourself back to life. Like, we completely miss that one. But Jesus wasn't this mythical superhero. He was God. And he showed that he had the power to defeat death. And now we pick up in John, in chapter 11. And I want to pick up in verse 45. As we walk through this text today, we're going to look at uh, verses 45 to chapter 12. And we're going to move right up to the triumphal entry. And then we're going to push pause. And I don't have a ton of points for you as we go through this text today. We're just going to let the text unfold. We're going to glance at some of the characters. I do have three short points as we look at Mary's worship when we get there in just a minute. But there's a lot to be said in this passage uh, that addresses politics. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn particularly in the difficult political times that we find ourselves in uh, today as we look at this passage. So follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said... What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Those who went to the Pharisees weren't going to try to convince the religious leaders that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Instead, they were going to share what Jesus had done in raising a man from the dead. Can we stop right there for just a minute? Like many of us know this story of Lazarus. But can we stop and recognize how Satan so easily uh, oftentimes tries to convince us 
uh, how he's at work in our hearts and lives, compelling us to worship something other than Jesus. The miracles that Jesus performed up until this point, they were undeniable. Completely undeniable. But there were still some who chose not to believe because their hearts were simply worshiping other things. And the same is true today for people. The same is true for people outside the church as well as for people inside the church. What was it in this passage that their hearts were worshiping more than Jesus that blinded them from seeing Jesus as God and giving their lives to Him? What were they so concerned about that they would ignore the resurrection of a man who was dead for four days? Well, the scriptures tell us in verse 48, they were concerned about their place and their nation. The religious leaders were concerned that the temple and their way of life as Jewish people would be taken away. And rightfully so. Remember Antiochus Epiphanes? We, we shared that story of Hanukkah. Uh, 167, 166 B.C., uh, the Maccabean Revolt. So it was only about 160 years or so, 190 years, that that the Jews had 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 their temple again and that they were worshiping as a nation. And I think that this is a warning to us today to be careful that you don't become so passionate in defending God your political rights, and your religious liberties, that you miss Jesus. Christians must remember that our allegiance to Jesus means that we're neither Republican or Democrat or Independent. There is no single political party that will ever adequately represent the kingdom of God. We stand with Jesus alone. If you're completely comfortable standing with any political party today, then you should be really concerned about your faith. We stand with Jesus alone. The church has our attention. And this is something that that I think we must begin to address as we see our passions for politics outweighing our passions for Jesus. And here's the problems that we face, guys. The church has your attention for about two hours a week. About an hour on Sunday and maybe an hour or two uh, in a missional community or in a small group. Now hopefully you are living in light of the gospel. And you're living as a follower of Jesus 24-7. But the church only has the attention of people directly for a couple of hours a week. But the media has your attention for nearly 90 hours a week through pot. Think, think for a moment. It's much more than you realize. Through podcasts, through radio shows, through cable news, through social media, through streaming entertainment, and all other forms of media. And I have a graph for you that shows that COVID-19 has caused these numbers to spike to nearly 13 hours a day in the average adult American's life. 13 hours a day of consuming technology. And that makes for a... There's no other way to say it. A simply toxic diet. As Christians, we must consider the realities that we face. We must consider media fasts. And we must begin to treat media gluttony and excessive internet times as the addictions that they are. Let me say that again. 
We must begin to treat media gluttony and excessive internet times as the addictions that they are. And I think that that's a new concept for many of us today. But if we are more excited, if we have more posts on our social media about political issues than we do about Jesus, then it should be a call for us to examine our heart and examine our lives. I would encourage you each day. You say, what do I do with this? I've I've fallen into this reality where 13 hours a day, this media is just coming at me and And Silicon Valley is building apps that just aggressively are pulling our brains. uh, And they work. They work well. I have noticed in my life a, a terrible habit. If something is awkward, if I get off an awkward phone call, if I have a decision to make, if I have a task in front of me that I don't want to accomplish... I have found in my own life that I find myself on social media and don't know how I got there. It's like this instant reaction where my finger just scrolls and presses the button. And it's a sense of relief. It's a sense of, can I unplug for a moment? And it's a habit that I've recognized in my own life that needs to be broken. One of the ways that I think we can begin to break these habits in our lives is I would encourage you, in the mornings, begin with the daily discipline of the scriptures and prayer. That you would begin each day apart from your phone, but in Jesus' word, taking just a few moments in prayer. One of the ways that's most effective for me is to go on a walk, to grab a cup of coffee, to read the scriptures, and just to go on a walk. And have some time where I can meditate. Where I can be away from my phone. Beginning the day with the Lord. Because here is the danger. The danger for us. J.I. Packer writes about this in the preface of his book. Knowing God. The danger is that we begin to think of God in a very small way. And the things of eternity in a very small way. And the things of this world that are not eternal in a very large way. And that's the society in which we live. But that's not the way of the kingdom of God. That's the way in which we're uh, flying upside down. And the scriptures help us to be reminded of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Worship Jesus. I would recommend to you David Murray's book, Reset. It's a great little book that would help you to explore Uh, How to Live Your Faith in This New Digital Age. It's a really entertaining, great little book that you could pick up by David Murray called Reset. Let's continue reading. Pick up in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. This guy knows how to win friends and influence people. (laughs) You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone... That if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Caiaphas begins, you know nothing at all. He was a real, he was a real people kind of guy. Um, however, his harshness, this is amazing, folks. His harshness is filled with some amazing irony. He says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Little did he know the truth of this statement. Not in the way he intended it. He intended it for murder. But little did he know that the truth of this statement would be true. Caiaphas was thinking from the perspective of political prudence. And what was best for the ruling party of his day. And listen, that's a warning to us today. D.A. Carson says it this way. I have a quote for you. He says, and so he died, but the nation perished anyway. Not because of Jesus' activity, but because of the constant mad search for political solutions where there was little spiritual renewal. Justice is sacrifice to expediency. Justice is sacrifice Caiaphas uses sacrificial language when he argues that Jesus must die for the people. He didn't mean this in the Christian sense anyway, but he meant that Jesus must be the scapegoat in order to spare the nation and its leaders. And listen, folks, this should encourage us in this coming election in November. This should encourage us in our political climate today that God uses governing officials to accomplish His will even when they do evil deeds. And so, you don't have to be depressed for the next four years this November if your candidate doesn't win. Because Jesus has already won. In this text, we see that God, in His providence, guided Caiaphas' tongue. Even though Caiaphas meant to kill Jesus, God uses His words prophetically to bring forgiveness and to bring salvation to you and to me. And This is where we see the great doctrine of substitutionary atonement that's so near to those who are followers of Jesus. If you aren't familiar with the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. You need to be familiar with it. Or some theologians would refer to it as penal substitution. And I realize that that word uh, penal substitution is not a word that's very familiar to us today. It's a word that probably would cause many middle, school, middle schoolers to giggle. Like what, 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 is, what does that mean? Um, but the word penal. Think of the penal farm where People would be imprisoned. So it refers to punishment under the legal system. Many people struggle with this idea of substitutionary atonement. Why would Jesus need to sacrifice himself? Why this need for God's judgment? 
I mean, why can't God just make brownies for everybody and, and grant everyone forgiveness? And, and that's a legitimate question. In fact, it's a question that not only does Christianity need to answer, it's a question that every major religion in the world must answer. I mean, to boil it down to its basics, how can I go from being God's enemy to God's friend and God not tarnish his character or his reputation or his holiness or his perfection, right? So Paul helps us with that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul would tell us that, that we as followers of Jesus are ambassadors. And in verse 20, he would say, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now how can Christians call for others to be reconciled to a holy God and God's character not be tarnished? It's a question that all religions must answer. Because without substitution, how does God reconcile and forgive? Penal substitution, all sin must be punished. All sin must be punished. And believe me, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, you believe that to be true in your heart of hearts. You believe it. I'll convince you you believe it. In Atlanta, Georgia, this last week, 39 small children all the way up to teenagers were rescued by U.S. Marshals. Many of you saw this story. 39 missing children were recovered and taken home to their families. 15 of those 39 were trafficked for sex. Now imagine for a moment that the news then reported. And those nine adults that were arrested. We assume they learned their lesson. And so we let them go. How many of you would be satisfied with allowing adults who kidnap kids. And then prostitute them. To merely let them go. No one in their right mind would be okay with that. Where does that sense of righteousness come from? Where does the sense of right and wrong come from? It's built into us by our creator. And God is the one who is holy. And for, in order for God to extend forgiveness. Paul helps us out with this. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He says. How does God for, extend forgiveness? How does God enable us to go from being enemies of God. To friends of God. He tells us in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why the doctrine of substitution is so valuable to follow. Because on the cross, Jesus took our place. He, he carried our identity and he bore the curse that was due to us. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Paul writes about Galatians 3 verse 13, Paul says... Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ came 
our substitute. He carried our identity. He bore the curse due to us and made peace for us. Ending our punishment. Ending our guilt. That's why what Caiaphas declares to be true. That's why it's so valuable to the believer. This idea that Jesus substituted himself in our place. Substitution is so near and dear to us. I'll remind you of that just from a physical perspective of what you have experienced in your life. Do you know the feeling? Stop and imagine just for a moment the feeling, the knot that you get in your stomach when you are not at peace with your spouse or with your children. When there is a a huge rift in between you. That knot in your stomach of, of everything is not right. Now imagine living with that knot in your stomach for a lifetime between you and God. Praise be to Jesus. Praise be to God for substitutionary atonement that Jesus would die in our place. And that God would even use Caiaphas in order to declare what would be his evil deeds to be used in God's providence. This section, it ends, and, and we're going to finish by looking at beautiful picture of someone who passionately loved Jesus, Mary. Not in a romantic way, but in a worshipful way. And she helped prepare him for the sacrifice he would make. Look at John uh, chapter 12, and we're going to finish with verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. I mean, what do you do, right? Jesus, he's shown up, appeared before. He's raised your friend from the dead. What do you do? You throw a party for the guy that raises your family member from the dead, right? This is, I bet this was an awesome party. Throw a party for Jesus and Martha's in her normal space. She's serving, Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Lazarus is an honored guest there with Jesus. They're still celebrating the fact, man, Lazarus was gone. Now he's alive again. We still can't believe it. Everybody's hanging out together. Everybody's having a wonderful time. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, let me point this out real quick. If you read the other Gospels, they share more detail. Um, I believe Luke, as Luke speaks of Jesus being anointed, I think that was a separate incident. Matthew and Mark seem to share this same incident. We can talk more about the whys of that later. But they share more detail. They also shared that it was not only Judas, but it was the other disciples as well who struggled with what Jesus was doing. But John highlights Judas' character because we see where Judas' character, what was in his heart, how it betrayed him and how it eventually betrayed Jesus. But Judas, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared. Having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. In this story, uh, we see a lot that's taking place. You kind of see the scene that's going on here. Probably there would be a U-shaped table and, and Jesus is reclining there. His feet are facing out. And Lazarus is reclining near him. And Martha's doing her normal thing. That's one of the ways in which she worships, right? She, she's serving. And I want to thank a few of you who have just been serving so much in order to get us even back in this room. Uh, Michael and, and Peter and Robert and Bill and some of them, I, I think we need to put them on payroll. Uh, a few of these guys have spent not just hours up here. They've literally spent days and nights up here trying to get um, technology in place and wires rerun and cameras hung. And um, really am thankful for all that they've done. We can worship Jesus through our service as well. Those of us who love to worship through our service need to be careful that we don't get so caught up in our service that we think we can do great things for Jesus. But we see Martha serving And then we see Mary. And Mary shows us three characteristics of love that I just want us to point out. And I want to ask you to consider, do you see these three characteristics in your own life? The characteristics of extravagance and humility and spontaneity. First, extravagance. She she took about a pound of ointment made from pure nard. Uh, It would be nearly a year's wages. Would you be willing to give Jesus forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars? That's what Mary did in this moment. Maybe it was more than that. Now, scripture seems to show us that Mary was pro- most likely wealthy. Um, she takes this valuable ointment, <clears throat> and in gratitude and love for Jesus, she anoints not his head but his feet. Did she know what she was doing? I don't think so. No, she was merely being obedient to the Holy Spirit and the desire she had to worship Jesus. And we too, as followers of Jesus, should act in obedience in much the same way. When the Holy Spirit instructs us to do things, oftentimes they will be extravagant. Meaning they will be outside of the norm. It's one of the ways oftentimes that you can know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. He's calling you to do something that is outside of the norm. Something that might seem extravagant. And so I would just encourage you, moms, if you are choosing to live extravagantly and to invest your time in your children, maybe you've made some changes in your life and you're saying, hey, I'm going to educate my kids. I'm going to spend more time with my kids. That's living extravagantly. Pursue Jesus. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Time well spent. Maybe Jesus is calling you to live extravagantly. You could sell and instead of trading the car in and being able to get a little more car. Maybe Jesus is calling you to give that car away to someone. We've seen these kinds of extravagant gifts given in the life of our church over the years. There's been multiple cars that have been given to individuals who have needed them. God calls us, if we're really following Jesus, we should be living lives that are extravagant in the way that we are giving ourselves away. Secondly, we see that Mary was very humble. 
Mary bowed herself before Jesus in worship as she anointed, not his head, but his feet. She took on the role of a servant and honored Jesus as her Savior and King. And there's nothing, I want to remind us, as we serve Jesus, there is nothing that God calls us to in the Christian life that is too low. How could we possibly go lower than the one who stepped across the dividing line between heaven and earth in order to become our substitute, taking our identity, our sin, our suffering, dying in our place? There is no place Jesus will call us to go that is too low. That's in our relationships, that's in marriage, that's in family life, that's in serving others. Humility is the mark of a grateful disciple. And it cannot be generated on our own. It can only be lived through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And finally, Mary was spontaneous. Mary let down her hair. This was highly unusual for a Jewish woman at this time to let her hair down in public. It was a lack of of, of self-consciousness. When, and that's what happens in our lives when we encounter the power and the presence of Jesus. We just really don't care about what others think. Their opinions pale in comparison. Do you remember what that was like when you first met Jesus and your heart was on fire for him? Lovers of Jesus are spontaneous and they don't care what, uh, what people or culture says about them. Now, Judas, however, he loved money more than Jesus. And Judas is a warning to each of us as well as we consider our worship, as we consider our extravagance, and we consider the humility of our hearts, and we consider our own spontaneity. Judas loved money more than Jesus. A lot of times when we hear this passage, we instantly go, oh, money, there we go, money's evil. The Bible never teaches that money is evil. The Bible teaches that money is the root of all evil. And so oftentimes we think about money from a political sense or a weird cultural sense. So there are some faiths that teach, if you have money, then you're blessed. You got this blessing coming from God. And if you don't have money, you're not being blessed. Some faiths teach that. Kind of a health and wealth prosperity kind of movement. Then culture oftentimes says, if you have money, you're blessed. And if you don't have money, you're not blessed. Neither of those are true. I'd like for you to think about four different characteristics of money. There are the righteous wealthy and the unrighteous wealthy. And there are also the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor. We can allow money, if we are not careful, to grab hold of our hearts. And it's an objective indicator of where our hearts really lie. What does your money say about your love and your worship of Jesus? Do you serve Jesus with your money? Or does your money control you? Finally, we see that in this passage, the last thing I want to point out is that we will be tested for our testimony if we're followers of Jesus. We will be tested for our testimony if we're followers of Jesus. I think this is truer today than it's ever been in our lifetimes Lazarus is attracting so many people because it's not every day you see this guy who's been dead for four days come back to life, right? I mean, think about that for a minute. If the book, which by the way wasn't true, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, some of you bought it in Kroger several years ago, you know what I'm talking about? The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, it sold over a million copies. The guy grew up and said, well, I was six when that happened, didn't happen, 
If that book could sell over a million copies, how many people are flocking around Lazarus, right? I mean, he is attracting all these people, and the religious leaders don't know what to do, so they agree, we'll just murder him, just like Jesus. Lazarus was faced with being tested for his testimony. We, too, are foolish if we believe we can follow Jesus and not be tested for our testimony. We live in a society today that's no longer Christian. Listen to me, folks. The society that we live in today is no longer a Christian society. Many religious leaders are fighting to promote politicians that they hope can right the ship for, the, um, for America. But America is like the Titanic. It's only a matter of time before we look like secular Scandinavia. And the statistics prove to be true. That's not my opinion. I'm telling you the facts. If a country has a fertility rate of 2.1 or lower children per woman, the population will age and contract. And those contracting societies around the world, despite many differences, all tend to be secularizing rapidly. That includes the United States with a fertility rate of 1.7 per woman, which mirrors secular Scandinavia. What do we do as followers of Jesus? We will be tested for our testimonies. What do we do about this? Do we panic? Is Christianity dying? Absolutely not. In fact, current trends suggest that Africa will be home to nearly 1 billion Christians in the next 30 years. I think that the heart of Christianity over the next few decades will probably lie not in America or in the West. I believe most likely it will, the heart of Christianity will lie on the continent of Africa. So what do we do here in the West in the meantime? Well, we heed the advice of this story. We examine our hearts to make sure we aren't serving money. To make sure we aren't serving the state. To make sure we aren't serving politics. Or anything other than Jesus. And we worship Him extravagantly. With humility. And spontaneously. As He continues to lead us to be on mission for Him. He is our great substitute. And His kingdom will never end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for this text that we study today. God, thank you for the truths um, that we see. God, our hearts can be uh, so distracted so easily. And God, the technology that's around us, um, God, it's so powerful in the way that it pulls us in. Father, may we be a church and we, may we be followers of you, um, God, who, who don't make much of this world, but God, who instead make much of Jesus. And in making much of Jesus, God, may we have better perspective how we can serve and love those who are around us. How we can serve them extravagantly, in humility, as we learn to turn the other cheek, as we forgive our enemies, as we would seek to listen before we would speak, as we would give a kind word to those who don't deserve it, and as we would live spontaneously for the sake of the kingdom, as we follow our great King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.